Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Entertainment, music, pop culture, LGBT plus news. Let's go there. Start now. Hello. Happy Tuesday, everyone. This is Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan, where we catch you up on the news of the day, pop culture, our lives, so much more with some fun music in between right here on Channel Q. Yes, yes. Welcome back to another show, everyone. We got a lot to talk about because a lot has occurred. Oh, my God. I mean. I mean, the last 24 hours. So I was. It's always something, right? I do sometimes wish. Uh-huh. Like, I'm very grateful about having this job. Yep. I mean, I'm grateful for what we do, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of tweeted about this, but sometimes it can be very exhausting, and I think oftentimes you don't hear enough stories about just like media personalities or journalists talking about the stresses and the the feelings that you have to put aside uh-huh. to have to report the news, especially when it comes to like murders and deaths and all these things. It's just like... Huh. Can I just have a break for a moment? I didn't even mean to say this. But But that's real because a lot of people tweet about it, but people don't talk about it on air because you think or you're told, like, don't bring it in. But it's like at this point, it's life, right? It is. It is. And guess what? When we were talking about all the stuff happening and still happening, obviously, against the LGBTQ plus community, it's heavy. And then when you're talking about what's happening against uh, black and brown people and the black community, um, and then you being a man, you know what I mean? Like, am I? Yes. Uh, as a, is that as, is that how I identify? <laughs> but like you know, and, and I give credit, uh, you know, to you for continuing to show up every single day and and putting your best foot forward. And that's all you can do. But I can't imagine the weight that is. Well, on your shoulders even, and, and the energy drain. Well, I want to be very clear. I think um, it can be a lot, but I do think I have set m- major boundaries from yeah. not wanting to experience the way I experienced feelings and emotions and mental health last year and mm. last summer. And so for me, um, I will choose to engage in certain conversations because yep. I find them to be important, obviously. And uh, But sometimes I won't because I th- do think we all need to have a little bit of a break in, in those moments, right? And and that's why I'm happy that we get to do what we do because we all give each other grace and space in that way to to deal with things in, in whatever way we need to, however we need to deal with them. Yeah. You know? And by the way, this was not the plan to open the show. Oh, it but wasn't. We, it wasn't. Uh, we went there. This, <laughs> this is the vibe and so we talk about it. We just, you know, I did not not mean for it to go this way, but hello. Hello. <laughs> you're in, you're, I mean, that's what this, I feel like this is what we come and we provide, kind of an intimate look at our lives in that way, and, and that's just what I was thinking. And, and you need to talk about the elephant in the room. Yes, please, please, because we're going to be talking about it some more today, actually, yes. very 
very sad. And actually, coming up in the in the 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern hour, what not to say when someone shares their trauma with you. Oh, ew, that ding, ding, ding. That's a good story. Yeah, very relevant. Uh, and of course, Johnson & Johnson, the vaccine. Um, the U.S. is calling for a pause. We're going to tell you why. We have Dr. Amesh Adalja from Johns Hopkins Center for Health joining us for that also in an hour. I think they're being so dramatic, to be quite we honest. We will see. Yeah. We'll, we'll get the scoop, all the info. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Brooklyn Center, uh, Center Minnesota Mayor Mike Elliott discussed the protesters out in the streets following the police killing of Dante Wright. From being with them, I, I just felt their pain. And I understood that they're not out to harm anyone. They're in fear of their lives. So I just want to be really clear about that. I want to be clear about that. I don't believe that protesters are... Uh, showing up because they they want to you know harm harm someone. Mm-hmm. Ooh, very true. Yeah, uh, it's good to see a leader speaking up in the way that people want to hear and yeah. for, saying what people want to hear yeah. in a time like this. Uh, he also announced the resignations of Kim Potter, the officer who killed Dante Wright, and Brooklyn Center Police Chief Tim Gannon. We'll be sharing more, of course, as we continue in what's trending this hour. But what's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so you might be wondering why Lady Gaga's Art Pop album is sitting in the top 10 of the iTunes charts right now. If you're not, I am, because this is what I'm obsessed with. It's time for the Tea Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So the little monsters are to thank for the moment we uh, all know Lady Gaga deserves. A Change.org petition launched by Gaga's fans earlier this month with 40,000 signatures, actually more than that, um, uh, basically them demanding a part to our act two of Art Pop, which if you remember when she released that album, the press, the media, the charts, they all basically took a huge dump on it. They hated that album. I uh-huh. loved Art Pop. It was a great album. Well, Lady Gaga saw the love she was getting and responded saying this. Making this album was like heart surgery. I was desperate and pain and poured my heart into electronic music that slammed harder than any drug I could find. I fell apart after I released this album. Thank you for celebrating something that once felt like destruction. We always believed it was ahead of its time. Years later, turns out sometimes artists know. And so do little monsters. Pause up. And so I really like that story. And I thought, you know, she deserves this love, to be quite honest. And maybe we will get that part two of our pop. It'll be cute. Yeah, that's crazy that there was a part two. Yeah, yeah. That There was a, a producer that worked on the album. He basically revealed being like, yeah, I think you're going to have to petition, you know, for Lady Gaga for that one. That's literally what the fans decided to do. And they got all those signatures. So that's your team report. I got more coming up next hour. Uh, well, next up on the show, the GOP thinks that Biden isn't tweeting enough. And that's impacting his leadership. What? Do they have a point? We discuss everything. that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn is saying that President Biden's communication strategy, you know, not tweeting as much or being everywhere in the media like Trump, means that he's not doing his job. Is that the case? Well, joining us right now is Olivier Knox, who wrote about this, author of the Daily 202 newsletter in the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. 
So is there a rhyme behind the reason with Biden's strategy here? And why did you decide to focus on this? Well, you know, in my 20 some odd years of covering uh, the White House and national politics, I've become something of a student of presidential communications. I like to think I know a fair amount about them um, that I uh, that I can detect some of the, the, the fine tuning, some of the changes, some of the strategies. And what you have here is a very, very cautious Biden White House. You know, they don't. Um, put him in front of formal press conference settings all that much. He's only had one. Looks like he's going to have another one this Friday with the uh, visiting Japanese prime minister. But this really kind of struck me for a couple of reasons. One is that the, um, the original Politico article on which Senator Cornyn was leaning is actually just about what I just said, the, the fact that the Biden White House has been very cautious. Um, they don't put him in front of, uh, uh, of reporters a lot. He's out there. He does, you know, Oval Office sprays, cabinet room sprays, but you don't see him quite as much. And of course, he's not constantly tweeting, live tweeting Fox News or calling in for, you know, 40 minute grievance uh, laced rants. Um, but what struck me was when Cornyn added, uh, invites the question, is he really in charge? That was not in the Politico piece. Politico was not suggesting that Biden was somehow not in charge just because his approach was different from mm-hmm. Trump's. And this is something that I've noticed, uh, not just throughout the campaign, but ever since Biden took office. There's a wing of the Republican Party that seems very invested in the idea that Biden is somehow uh, diminished mentally, that he can't do the job, that he's a figurehead, that he's a stalking horse for the left. Um, it's actually everywhere you look on conservative media, on Fox News, uh, on, on in digital. Uh, and it's 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 pretty wild to see people who are not medically qualified, remote diagnosing the president of the United States. Um, and that's really what I wanted to dig into um, with this particular column. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like they have anything. And so they're just kind of grasping at just whatever they could. But, you know, Biden has told us, even when he was running, that you won't have to worry about my tweets when I'm president. So is it really that shocking that he's not taking the the, the route that our the former president did? And it seems like he's trying to... Rem- you know, show us what the actual president is that presidency is about, you know, actually making policy changes and doing the work instead of being a social media star. Yeah, you know, we've only had three presidents on Twitter, and I, I would say that that uh, Trump is more likely to be the aberration than Biden here. I mean, you know, Barack Obama was not exactly a constant presence on Twitter. He did occasionally sign the odd tweet, you know, B.O. or whatever. But no, I mean, you know, Donald Trump's approach to Twitter, his relationship to Twitter was very, very different. He made it clear very early on that it was his megaphone, that it was his way of getting around the mainstream media. Um, So the fact that Biden would go back to a much more traditional model is, I mean, it's the opposite of shocking. It's the opposite of surprising. It's what we would expect from a a politician whose brand is essentially, you know, I am normal. I, I joked at the top of my column today, back in the late spring of 2017, I was having a conversation with a Republican uh, consultant. And he said, listen, you know, come 2020, the winning Democratic argument is going to be, I swear to God, there'll be days you forget I even exist, which, (laughs) you know, he intended as a direct repudiation of the all Trump all the time menu that we had from January 2017 until this January. Yeah, it was inevitable they would use that also against him. But thank you again for joining us and for your commentary. My pleasure. Anytime. That was Olivier Knox, author of the Daily 202 newsletter in The Washington Post. Coming up on the show, what we need to know about Biden withdrawing U.S. forces from Afghanistan. That's next with uh, The Washington Post national security reporter, Missy Ryan. 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. News came out that President Biden will officially withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan over the coming months, completing the military exit by or before the 20th anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 attacks. And here to share more is Missy Ryan, the national security reporter at The Washington Post, who reported about this. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So why is this happening now? Let's talk about timing. So the Biden administration is facing a May 1 deadline for uh, supposedly taking all troops out of Afghanistan under a deal that the Trump administration negotiated with the Taliban in 2020. And that was part of basically an action that was supposed to catalyze a peace process and hopefully at some point a peace deal to end the long conflict in Afghanistan. So when the Biden administration came into office, they knew that they had this May 1 deadline where they were supposed to withdraw all forces. So what they've done now is say, is said basically that they're not going to be able to meet that deadline, but they will comply. They will pull out all troops by September of 2021, so about four months late, um, with the intent of really ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan after 20 years. Yeah, but isn't the Taliban promising to renew attacks um, if they're not out by that deadline? Like, what does that mean? They have said repeatedly that they will attack U.S. forces um, if they if they don't get out. But, you know, the Taliban hasn't said whether or not they will sort of waive that or go along with the situation, given the fact that um, the the U.S. government is now saying it'll happen four months later. A lot. An analyst that I talked to today said that it was it was likely that that would happen, um, that that the Taliban would kind of look the other way because they know it's in their interest to allow the U.S. to get out. Mm, okay. So wow. the big debate is like, is this good or a bad move? Should he be doing this? Well, it depends on on what your perspective is on on the war. And uh, we've seen reactions from both sides in Congress today. From, interestingly, from both sides on, on both parties, there's bipartisan support for leaving and there's bipartisan opposition to leaving. And the arguments for leaving now is that, you know, we've tried this for 20 years. Uh, we have never been able to get the conditions to what we wanted them to be for a sustainable period of time. And there's no reason to think that we can in the future um, and that the United States needs to focus on other priorities, including our economy, global health, competition with China and Russia. And on the other side of it, the reasons to argue against this is that uh, Afghanistan remains a really fragile place. And if the United States leaves, it could contribute to a collapse of the government and potentially renewed safe haven for extremists in Afghanistan who could once again strike the United States. Yeah, Mitch McConnell wasn't happy about this decision, was he? No, he wasn't. And he suggested that there might be some sort of legislative violation by the part of the Biden administration. I frankly don't expect um, any uh, that much to come of that because, you know, there are a lot of members of the Republican Party as well who are saying that, you know, the time has come for this to happen. But, you know, I, I think that it, it is uh, it, it's a, it actually has been an aspiration of presidents of both parties right. now for for 15 years, at least, you know, we had a, President Obama who promised to leave Afghanistan and didn't. You have President Trump who promised to leave Afghanistan and didn't. And what the uh, Biden administration is saying now is that this is not a conditions based decision. This will happen no matter what. And uh, they will try to provide support to the Afghan government after they leave. 
but it's really anybody's guess uh, as to how the peace process will go and how the security situation will go after the U.S. departure in September. And and how do the does the community there feel about this? I know there there's a conflict there probably on the ground of their support of the U.S. having been there that long. Yeah, I mean, there's gonna this is a big shot in the arm to the Taliban, obviously, because they they can claim this as a big victory. They forced the, another. Uh, this is you know the second time that a global superpower has been forced out of Afghanistan by an insurgency. The first being the Soviet Union. So that um, that will be a big uh, rallying point for their cause. You know, the ordinary Afghans, I mean, I think there's a lot to fear. Obviously, these 20 years under the United States um, have not been great in many ways. You know, there's been a lot of conflict. There's been a lot of civilian casualties. But on the other hand, there have been huge improvements to uh, health indicators, to education indicators. The gains that have been made for women's rights, notably, are massive. And now there are certainly a lot of reasons to worry about potential reversal to those kind of things if the Taliban comes into power or if the country tips back right into a huge civil war. Wow. This is so much. Scary stuff, but thank yeah. you for coming on to break it all down because I feel like this is not something that everyone is like always knowing about, like just average everyday listeners. So thank you so much for breaking it down. Thank you. That was Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Have a great night. Coming up on the show, what happened when this conservative organization mocked Pete Buttigieg for denouncing racism? We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back. And uh, recently, a conservative organization, the Young America's Foundation, tried to mock Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. They did this over the weekend uh, because he called out racism in government policy. He uh, basically uh, said this to a magazine that uh here i'm getting the quote the griot yeah the griot there is racism physically built into some of our highways Uh, he was of course promoting two the two trillion dollar package from uh president biden the infrastructure package and he was referring to just a little history lesson how a majority of black neighborhoods have historically been torn down and divided in order to build highways in urban areas um, he said that there is money in Biden's proposal to address this. And so they're like, ah, ha, 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 this is not a parody. And they literally quoted him. Well, they got schooled. Yeah, because it's embarrassing. I mean, honestly, like, how about pick up a book before sending a tweet? I think that's what you need to, uh, a lot of these, like, conservative Twitter accounts, they, they're so ready to try to make a fool out of Democrats or try to make a fool out of, like, something that was said instead of at them actually understanding the history of what he's talking about because everything he's saying is very true. Yeah, like first, uh, before just assuming that people are just saying this to say this. And there's like, why is it that supporting other people's rights like one needs to be made fun of and secondly it needs people think that you're telling lies in order to support human rights, right? Like inequality. It's just messed up. Yeah, but people aren't thinking, it's not that it. I, you know what's so interesting about you? Mm. I feel like you think this is about, not about me. You think about everything like your Tinkerbell. Like I feel like Tinkerbell <laughs> is like so sweet and being like, oh my god, it's human rights. It's that simple. Uh, but when you're an evil, not evil, I shouldn't say. Well, I mean, yeah, people are like when you're awful. a maniacal when you're sociopath. Just, yeah, when you're just awful and you're only in it for yourself or you're looking at it through a lens that you're not even trying to be, uh, you know, imp- 
what's the word? Empathetic? What? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Compassionate? Yeah, compassionate. That's the simple word for it. Or you're not even really understanding the history are getting Well, guess it. what? You can be compassionate and still not informed. I think the no, next step that, of- that's actually the opposite of that, Well, right? my hope is, I think that a lot of people have- like people that say they're progressive or liberal or they want to be part of the right side might yeah have empathy and compassion i do think there's a leveling up of that that people are noticing that they get to have it's not just about you know i don't think being that's all lovey-dovey i don't think that's what that is because if you you're trying to like hide behind just these like you know oh my god i do want everyone to have the rights but then you're not well that's taking... what i'm saying yeah a lot but of that's people... the, that's just not what that is you're i think you're at the same playing field as you know unfortunately republicans or conservatives who are fighting those everyone is on the same playing field if you're not there you have to get there to understand what's going on i think there's that middle place so a lot of people live in the there gray is area. no middle place i'm sorry that when lives are on well the line. not well i mean listen you, you can't say that people are supporting the young oh it's called american uh these folks the yaf yeah no one's supporting i mean the young america's foundation but just because people um that's you a know conservative thing. i think that a lot of people i mean i'll admit last year i learned about redlining i didn't know about redlining until then I mean, I knew about like, of course, people are put like there. There's black and brown communities have been um, separated, but I didn't know it was called redlining. Yeah, but you're. I think the reason why I feel like I put you in a different perspective is because you're also actively like having conversations. You're actively trying to learn. You're actively trying to do something. I think there's a complicity that is wrapped up in. Oh my God, I feel bad for you, but I'm not going to do anything mm. about it. I feel bad for you, but I. Actually, I'm going to go watch TV now because I want to take my mind off of it because yeah. it's too much to think about. And so, yeah, there's I just there's this idea like that's not compassionate. That's not compassionate behavior, in my opinion. Well, level up. Let us know what you think at LGT show on social media. Where do you lie in all of this? You might want to do some research before you make fun of something. I still next think she is Tinkerbell. And if you think I'm Tinkerbell, let me know, too. Hey, I think that's kind of cool. No, she was annoying. Coming up. <laughs> Wasn't she, though? She was she so was annoying. cute. The Texas bill that would make the parents of trans children child abusers. This is crazy. We're going to be talking more about the next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Coming up on the show, what is complementarianism and how it pits religion against the LGBTQ plus community? Now it's possibly getting worse. Plus, why the U.S. is calling for a pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. We have an infectious diseases expert joining us for that in 30 minutes. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. A new Texas bill would define parents consenting to gender-affirming care for their trans kids alongside those who create child porn, sexually abuse children, give illegal drugs to children, and those who facilitate forced child marriages. Yep, this is happening in Texas right now. And it was proposed by a bunch of Republican lawmakers. Penalties for child abuse in Texas include jail time, fines, and removal of the child. This is getting next level here. And of course, continues to be fought. But it's 
Very scary how these bills continue to be proposed. Yeah, the Williams Institute uh, from UCLA, uh, they actually put out a new study that finds that 45,000 transgender youth are at risk of losing access to gender-affirming care because of these proposed state bans. And it's a map on their Twitter if you want to follow at Williams Policy. Um, where they're showing the different states um, from Texas to Georgia to Tennessee to Florida to, I mean, literally southern states um, that are impacting so many trans youth. And it just feels like it's getting worse. It's just awful. And one of them, we talked about it the other day, the age is 18 to 21 as well. Yeah. And that is also very scary. Uh, But... Before we get into more entertainment news, uh, Senator Maisie Hirono uh, proposed a bill to address the surge in hate crimes against Asian Americans. And here's what she had to say. As an AAPI person, I do. It, it does give me pause. If I, before, if I was walking around uh, outside, I would have my earbuds on. I'd be listening to books on tape. I would never do that now because of the incidence of totally unprovoked hate crimes against AAPIs. Okay, that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so we have uh, a couple of updates uh, with the whole Kim Ye divorce. Uh, Are you ready for it? Because it's interesting. Uh, Yes. Okay, let's do this. So, um... It's time for the Tea Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. Kanye West, he is seeking joint legal and physical custody of his four children with Kim Kardashian. Uh, Basically, this is his response to Kardashian's February divorce filing, which is basically a mirror image of uh, his wife's petition, according to the legal documents, which noted that the joint custody doesn't necessarily mean a 50-50 split of their four kids, Hmm. which is interesting. It's just like, what does joint custody mean if it doesn't mean you're going to be doing half of the work? I don't get it. Um... They're actually not seeking spousal support from each other, which I'm not really shocked about that because Kim Kardashian, she is now, you know, a billionaire. Uh, I know. Hello. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm actually really interested in seeing if he's ever going to ask her for money because you know he's had financial trouble a lot. But didn't he also just get announced that he had a ton of money? He all, I mean, of course he has a ton of money, but I, you just never really know what's going to happen. Um, and here's the really interesting thing about this as well. Kanye's like, he wants them to be equally responsible for their own legal fees. So he's like, I don't want to have to pay yours. You don't have to pay mine. Just pay whatever you need. I wonder if this is going to be a long, drawn-out thing. Are they just going to kind of nip it in the bud and call it a day? Because they do have four kids, and I can only imagine how that's, like, really... Mostly just, like, don't have time because they're so busy. But also, I don't think Kanye's really around that much. Like, they live here in He's in Montana or something? Where does he live? Wyoming. No, no, Wyoming. Somewhere. I mean, that sounds like the same place. I always mix it up i mix some it of sounds those like the same place mountain towns it doesn't i don't i mean there's horses or sheep one of those things. and lots of mountains yeah so it's the same place either way i'm interested in seeing you know how this the rest of this kind of comes out and it doesn't really seem like they're they're fighting at all which is really really nice they're not like a brad jelena did i screw that ship name brangelina up? brangelina <laughs> I mean, for now, that, you know, the Brangelina stuff came out, like, what, 10 years into their divorce? Yeah, it's been intense. But that's your tea report. I got more coming up next hour. 
Coming up on the show, we're going to be talking about complementarianism. What is it? How it's all about God assigning specific gender roles and how it came out of the feminist movement. A lot to take in okay. there. All right. Well, let's do it. We get into it next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Complementarian. Oh, my God. I can barely say it. Complementarianism. Okay. It's a word that we don't typically use, right? I mean, I think this may be the first time I've heard this word. Well, we like that. We like bringing up new things here yeah. on the show. It's actually become part of the evangelical doctrine, and it's all about the belief that God assigns specific gender roles. We could see how that impacts things right now. Uh, and throughout history, well, Susan Shaw, professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Oregon State University, uh, and who also wrote this in the conversation, joins us right now. Thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here today. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this big word that not a lot of us use, complementarianism. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it, it's a word that came into being in evangelical circles in the 80s and 90s. And it was in response to the ways that the women's movement and feminism were having influence on Christianity. And so you started having egalitarian Christian folk and, and you know, women who were daring to say they'd been called to pastor. And so this really, in my reading of it, arose as part of the backlash to women's progress, particularly within the church. I mean, hasn't organized religion, or when you're, when you're looking at it through kind of like this lens on how it impacts society, hasn't it always kind of been this a way of controlling what gender roles really look like in society and the patriarchy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a huge long history of that you know but a lot of people don't know that right alongside that there's always been a history of resistance to that as well uh and so there's been more egalitarianism than you would think um but it's often subordinated in the histories and in the tellings and also there's such backlash to it and the backlash is always much more exciting because it's kind of raises these these outrageous things that make us stop and go, what in the world are they thinking? <laughs> so why did you want to write about this right now? People might say, okay, you know, like, this isn't surprising. We know this, even though maybe we haven't used the word complementarianism. But why now for a piece like this? Well, so Beth Moore, who is a really prominent Bible teacher among evangelicals, and has had this huge following. Well, she made news about a month ago because she left Southern Baptist because of their support of Donald Trump and the way they've mistreated women. And she had been outspoken about that for a while, and she finally just said, I can't do this anymore. Well, just a few days ago, she also tweeted an apology for supporting this doctrine of complementarianism as a primary theological belief for evangelicals. So that's where the interest from the conversation came in having me write this little piece. And I guess, you know, us being Channel Q, part of an LGBTQ plus station, uh, how does this impact the community, this type of doctrine and message? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the corollary to all this, and, and in fact, it's so assumed in these circles, we barely have to say it, yet they do, is that we are talking about heterosexual marriage. I mean, th- these folk are for- firmly committed to the idea that marriage is between a man and a woman. And, and I'll just tell you, you know, a little more background is I'm queer and in a queer marriage myself. So I do have a vested interest in how we read about all of this sort of stuff. But 
uh, they, they definitely assume heterosexual marriage as the norm uh, for complementarianism uh, and then would say that the rest of us are, are living outside of God's laws. Okay. Well, have you, I guess, learned anything from your own research that you now are bringing into your life? Well, my my career started out in religious studies. I grew up Southern Baptist, and so it was in the midst of all of this back in the 1980s. I was at seminary when the all of this was going on among Southern Baptists, and so had to work through it all because I came from a fundamentalist family myself. And so, you know, coming out myself, uh, becoming a professor of religious studies and then later women, gender, sexuality studies, I really had to work through all of these things. And so that's really helped me both personally and professionally, and yet I can't seem quite to break away from it because I keep researching and writing on it anyway. Yeah, well, thank you for your work uh, and for this and uh, for bringing this to light for all of us. Yeah, I'm happy to do that because I think that people may not be aware, you know, Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S., and they're, they're concentrated in the Deep South, and so they have a lot of political clout. And so I think it's important that we understand this. And then you've got evangelicals all over the U.S., and we've seen kind of the, the, the clout they've had in political elections. So I think it serves us all well to understand what those beliefs are and imagine how do we engage in conversations with those beliefs so we can offer alternatives and challenges to that. Oh, yes, definitely. Well, uh, thanks again for being here. That was Susan Shaw, Professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Oregon State University. Uh, Check out their piece on complementarianism in theconversation.com. Have a great night. Thanks. Great. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Coming up on the show, what you need to know about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that is being pulled from the U.S. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Injections of Johnson & Johnson's single-dose coronavirus vaccine have come to a sudden halt in much of the country today after federal health agencies called for a pause in the vaccine's use following the emergence of a rare blood clotting disorder in six recipients. Here to let us know everything that's happening and what we should be concerned about is Dr. Amesh Adalja, who's an infectious diseases expert. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So can you explain what exactly happened? Well, what happened is that there were reports that had been collected through the CDC's vaccine adverse event reporting system of six individuals, six women who are all of reproductive age that developed a clot in a rare part of the body. It's a, it's a vein that is inside the brain. And these people also had low platelets. Platelets are a part of your blood that help with clotting. And it was very reminiscent of what people had seen with the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe. And that caused the CDC and the FDA to recommend pausing the the vaccine rollout of the J&J shot, of which 6.8 million or so doses have been given. And there's just six cases of this. And uh, that's sort of how the day started. Yeah, because... So Johnson & Johnson is already kind of reeling from this manufacturing era that we had you on when we discussed it that ruined about 50 million doses. And then I know there was some things that were happening in Colorado. Do you think, you know, were they too quick to kind of pull these things or uh, pausing the Johnson & Johnson shots? Um, Is that these things that happened in the past recently? Is that kind of what really went into this decision of being like, maybe we should temporarily halt uh, you know, halt this whole entire thing. 
the rationale they give is they want some time to investigate this and to communicate to doctors and to public health authorities about how to move this forward, and then they expect this pause to end. But I, I do think, and I might be, not not everybody in my field agrees with me, I think that they were a little bit uh, uh, overcautious here, because what we're talking about is a risk that is very, very minuscule, and there are better ways to go about this than pausing this. Uh, I think they could have said, let's pause the vaccine in females of reproductive age. Let's continue the vaccine and have people talk to their doctors about this. Let's investigate all of this in, in real time and, and not pause what's going on. Because if, if you look at just do the math of six cases uh, over 6.8 million doses, this is really not a risk that I think is is um, is unacceptable, especially when you look at the fact that we're in a pandemic with tens of thousands of cases occurring every day, that there are still people dying from this disease. And this vaccine, when you do the risk-benefit calculation, even if you would assume that these, these six cases are linked to the vaccine, the risk-benefit ratio still greatly favors the, the, the vaccine. And I think what's going to happen now is people are going to remember all those negative headlines that you just mentioned about, oh, the, yeah. about the people fainting, about the, the manufacturing error, about the Conference of Catholic Bishops attacking this because it uses fetal stem cells and, and it uses fetal cells in its, in its production process. All of that's going to come come back to uh, to haunt us. And I think this is just going to add to vaccine hesitancy. And also Johnson & Johnson, I'm sure all those uh, doses, all those vaccines they need to throw out that they had, or it'll be fine to use if it gets, um, they get, get given the permission again. Well, I'm sure there will be some wastage because some doses and vials might have been already open this morning when states started to kind of in cascading fashion stop stop the, the vaccine rollout. Hopefully there were some uh, courageous vaccinators there that still use those doses and didn't allow them to go to waste. Um, but I do think that, yeah, this is a, a setback. And I think the setback is not so much about supply because I think we'll have enough Moderna and Pfizer vaccine to cover, but it's about adding to vaccine hesitancy. And I think that's going to be irreparable. Yeah. And this is going to relegate Johnson & Johnson to a second-tier vaccine. And it's really no fault of their own. Yeah, but, and I, I do wonder, what about the people who have already received the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? I know, like, should they be worried that there's this possibility of this popping up? Because, I mean, I understand why people are concerned. The hesitancy makes sense because it is something that's fairly new. And, you know, especially if you are a black or POC person in this country, your relationship with the healthcare system is just not happening, you know? And so I do understand the con- the, the concerns, but I do want to know, like, if, you know, if I had a friend who already received the J&J vaccine, should they be worried? No, they shouldn't be worried. The, the symptoms of this super rare disorder are headache and neurologic deficits, like blurry vision. It's something totally different. And usually what's, what's occurred in these six cases, it's about a week or so after, after the vaccine dose. And if you have those symptoms anyway, an unremitting headache, if you've got really uh, neurological symptoms, meaning you can't, you can't see straight, parts of your face aren't working, you're having weakness, moving a limb. I mean, that should send you to the emergency department, irrespective of whether or not you got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But I would not worry. And even today, when this was happening, I had two friends call me asking, should they go get the vaccine? I said, hurry, before they stop giving. That's, that was my initial reaction. Okay, well, thank you for that uh, right now. Yes, I mean, it's still... Always seems crazy when we talk about this. I mean, you were listing off of list of things that I was just. But that's here, real. That's like intensely like yeah. whoa. That, I mean, but I I think, you know, you have a trusted doctor, and we we oh he hung up. Thank you. That was Doctor Amesh Dalja, infectious diseases expert. He gets to the point and he gets out he of here. He does. He's a doctor. He got other stuff. Yeah, to he do. does. He has other stuff to do. Coming up on the show, are you team Pfizer, Moderna, or perhaps Johnson & Johnson? How vaccine rivalries are taking over TikTok. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. 
With the vaccines these days, you know, there's gangs, there's the crews, the clubs. Are you in the Pfizer gang? Are you a Moderna boy? What? A no. Moderna man. You are a Moderna man, actually. No. Why do you keep assigning my gender today? It's like your favorite thing to do. Um, But I am. Yes, I do identify. Or them, so are you a Johnson and Johnson baby? Said, here's what I've said. Let's. Uh, this is what I've always asked. If someone has asked me what shot have gotten, I said I am easy. Be- I'm easy breezy beautiful Moderna girl. Okay, so you are a Moderna girl. I apologize. Yes, got I'm, it. It's like a cover girl. But well, Moderna yeah, girl. I get it. It went right over her. No, head. She didn't even are understand. you out of your mind? I know that. It, no, she didn't even flinch. Easy it's breezy very... beautiful Moderna girl. <laughs> I know the commercial. I could see it. Anyway, there are vaccine rivalries taking over TikTok. Okay. You know, a lot of people want to be part of the Moderna Girl Club uh, because country singer Dolly Parton donated $1 million towards its creation. You got some Dolly Parton in you. I mean, who doesn't want a little bit of her in her? Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is called the Walmart vaccine. Ooh. Well, we did just have a conversation about it, and it is sounding a little bit ghetto to me. Well... The CDC has reported that of the people in the U.S. who have received at least one dose of the vaccine, approximately 9.5% of them are 18 to 29. So, you know, they're putting their experience on TikTok. Uh, This article that talked about all this that we just found very entertaining in Yahoo.com, they interviewed these uh, 22-year-old, this 22-year-old girl, Lena Daniels. She said when she got her first vaccine, she wanted to share it out of excitement. She said, most people of my age are very progressive in their thought process, and they're just excited to get their lives back. Being so close to summer, everyone's excited. So they're sharing it on TikTok. Here's a little bit of her clip. Um, Only hot people get the Pfizer vaccine. If you got Moderna, then... I don't know what to tell you, Queen. This message is brought to you by Pfizer Gang. <laughs> so that's one way to uh, so market stupid. your vaccine. Just get all those youngins on TikTok. That is so dumb. And they'll be doing something. <laughs> Only hot people get it. But I, I, I mean, people have asked me online, what have I got? Oh, my God. Actually, speaking of this, someone I follow, their name on here says Moderna Minister. Like that's their. I'm name. telling you, they're Moderna. Like so, this people are claiming like interesting. the the vaccines are their territory. Yeah, I mean, as long people are having fun with it, I think it, it just gives us another reason to feel connected and have a make a joke of something that is you know has impacted us all for a very long time, and so I I appreciate it. He, uh, yeah, keeping it light, bringing levity to an otherwise hard situation. Another, you know, you said you're Moderna minister. These folks on TikTok said, Moderna gang, rise up. Well, what do you think? What gang are you part of? In terms of vaccines, hit us up on social media. You don't have at to. At LGT Show. <laughs> don't listen to Ryan. You really don't have to. Listen to your Pfizer girl right here. <laughs> no, come over here to Moderna land. I'm telling you, I got some snacks for you. What? Like acorns? I got some leftover carrots and hummus. No. That's traumatizing. Next up on the show, uh, what not to say when someone shares their trauma with you. That's very helpful right now. That's coming up in the next hour right here on Let's Go There. Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q.
Welcome back to the show. This is Shira and Ryan's over there. This is Let's Go There. And we're here for you 2 to 6 p.m. Pacific, 5 to 9 p.m. Eastern right here on Channel Q Weekdays. Coming up in 30 minutes, why some stress is actually good for you. We're sharing how to get better at dealing with it. What stress do you think is good for you? I think it's about uh, looking at things not as maybe like stressful more as a challenge. I really get <laughs> There are things in your life that when you look back at it, you see it was there to help you grow. In the midst of it, it doesn't feel fun. Well, that was the segment, folks. We are done. Thanks for Peace. tuning in. Drop the mic. <laughs> Uh, but uh, th- I think this is a topic that uh, is good for all of us. I mean, I'm just definitely very intrigued by this, like how to look at stress as good or bad. Is there a good, bad stress? We're going to be getting into that. Should we be la- labeling our stress? No. Yeah. Should we be judging our stress? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get into uh, some what's trending this hour. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about how the president will approach racial equity today, and here's what she had to share. I think what Americans who are exhausted, who have suffered, who are worried about their kids and their family members should know is that the president sees racial equity uh, as a central focus of his presidency, and his uh, actions bear that out. He has obviously signed a number of executive actions. He is a strong supporter of putting in place, working through legislation that can put in place permanent reforms. And he will continue to elevate and talk about the need to address these issues across the country at a range of opportunities. And I hopefully that gives some reassurance to the public about his commitment. Okay, Jen Psaki. Whatever. He couldn't even, first of all, Joe Biden couldn't even uh, call out, you know, the murder that happened um, without basically being in the neutral middle that he loves to be in without, you know, talking about the protesters and all these things, but saying the due process, like his statement yesterday, just, it really, it, it turns me off in the, in the sense of if he believes all of these things, his actions, that's, that's attached to his actions when it comes to being saying your first statement, when it comes to the, 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 the death of another black body. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, there's this always this disconnection to not understanding what that really means and how it ties into our lives, everyday lives. And even a simple statement of what he said, just, I don't know. I'm a little upset with him. We're simplifying a uh, very complex yeah. um, situation. Although yeah. it's simple in, in a way because it's clear what's happening and what needs to be done in a way. Uh, meanwhile, speaking of what's happening in Minnesota, as the Derek Chauvin case continues, the defense called witnesses today as a use of force expert said Chauvin's actions were justified. A former police officer called by Chauvin's defense testified that being held face down with arms and legs restrained doesn't hurt and called it a control technique. So this was uh, one of their ways of excusing what happened. Uh, and this was an expert that they specifically brought in. And uh, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? 
Okay, well, let's dive in and talk a little bit about Miss Christina Aguilera and how she's opening up about her insecurities and how she's been able to overcome them. It's time for the T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. So in an interview with Health Magazine for their May cover story, the singer explained why she felt so insecure when she was younger um, in the music industry. She said, I think we all have our good days and our bad days and how we feel about ourselves entering this business I hated being super skinny once I turned 21 I started filling out a little bit and I was loving my new curves I appreciated having a booty I've always said that women are way more interesting to look at than men (laughs) wow I have a hard time looking at the earlier uh, pictures of myself because I remember feeling so insecure Mm. I feel like we all kind of go through that, right? Like, just looking at photos when you're younger. But, I mean, it's amplified when you're a pop star at, like, the age of 20. Yeah, and also, if, if you've changed and your body's changed and you're happy with your where you're at, you might look back and you're like, wow, I looked like a baby, a child. That's the thing that I and look at. To be honest, at. women are more interesting to look at than men. Hey, I, yeah. Women it's are actually beautiful. quite true. Yeah. They were very statuesque. Just Who, saying. you? As as one as a woman, yes, <laughs> I'm told I'm statuesque. Who told you that? Name three people. Uh, I can't reveal them. <laughs> my boyfriend. Of course, he's supposed to say that. My or he'll mom. Get hot water. Okay. Well, she's also supposed <laughs> to say that. And um, an, uh, someone else. Uh, anyway, and uh, people on my Instagram. <laughs> I think you just, know who you are. It reminds me of that conversation that we had yesterday about like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of about when you get older and you start doing that reflecting of like your life and and how you can come out of situations and I, I think that I'm happy that she's able to talk about it and appreciate every little bit of piece of her, yeah. which is always wonderful. You know what? I never think I have a booty, but then I put on jeans from the other year. Let me t- let me tell I you, my booty. No, my butt booty. cannot get into those jeans. I so the still booty is growing live on in air <laughs> in Los Angeles, California. I am going to announce the Sheer Lazar still has no butt. That's not fair. It's okay. Depends on what angle you look at. Enjoy what you got. Oh, I do. Cause you are beautiful. Yes, you that's love. what I'm talking about. Okay, that was... Uh, I hate this show. I don't even know. Top of the hour. <laughs> Coming up on the show, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening in our world, oh, in our country. How to be there for the folks around you. What not to say when someone shares their trauma with you. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. So you have a friend who shares a traumatic experience with you. So what do you say, what do you do? What do you say? What's the best way to handle it? Well, we're here to help you navigate this situation as well as I think this is something that we all really need. I mean, I could use this. Abigail Makepeace joins us right now, a marriage and family therapist who specializes in trauma. Thanks for being here for this. Thanks so much for having me. So why is it important to really understand how to deal with these types of situations? Well, I think, uh, you know, when someone comes to you and they share something that's traumatic from their past, it requires a lot of bravery. And, you know, someone who's sharing stuff from their past probably already has a lot of shame around their experience. They already have a lot of fear of being judged. And so it's really important that you are able to hold faith and acknowledge all of those elements when someone comes forward to share something that's like troubling 
or traumatic. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is this idea, like, even if they're sharing something with you and, like, the power behind labeling it a trauma when they haven't necessarily called it that, can you talk a Mm -hmm. little bit about, like, how that can be problematic, kind of labeling something for someone else when they're not seeing that in their, their own way? It's like we're kind of pushing our own perspective and POV on them and not really, we're meaning to be helpful, but we're not really. (laughs) (laughs) Right. When we tell them how they should feel about something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. 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 You know, that's, that's a really important point that you just made because everybody processes an experience differently. So, you know, something that was difficult for me might not be difficult for you. But if you reflect on it and you say, well, I think you should feel that that um, should cause you depression or that that would make you really anxious. um, That's your own experience that you are projecting onto someone. So, yeah, you're right. Very, very right. That it's important to leave space for someone to tell you how they've experienced something in their past. And, yeah, it can be really damaging when you tell them how they should feel about it. Yep. I mean, I I think I've learned in my 37th year, unfortunately, my like power of being an empath. I was like, I could get it because I could connect. Instead of just like s- sitting back and listening, I was always trying to like connect, right? And I would, right. I would, I would do that. I would say, well, I'm I'm being on the same page as them, but that's not what it's about. So I think that's really important right. to emphasize. Yeah, yeah. You know, that reminds me of even that way that people try to connect on the other side of that. You know, when someone shares with you, um, something that happened from their past. And then if you jump to trying to connect and saying something like, oh, you know, that same thing happened to me, um, you know, that can also be a little bit invalidating because in some way it kind of like shifts the focus of the conversation and like diverts it onto yourself versus um, acknowledging their own experience. Um, in this article in HuffPost where we found you, um, it says also, don't say it could have been worse. Don't say, well, that happened right. to you because you did or didn't do because that's victim blaming as well. Right, right, right. But, you know, so, oftentimes people feel like they're like they're bonding, like with them. Trauma they, bonding? Well, not trauma bonding, but like just bonding with them or trying to make them feel more comfortable if they say, well... I mean, I, something kind of like that happened to me or similar, but is that a big no-no to say that? Like being like, well, that kind of happened to me too or someone I know. You know, it's very well-intentioned. And I think it's a little bit problematic sometimes when you're doing it when they immediately share something with you, right? Because you think that you're showing someone, you know, I can relate. Yeah. But again, it can unintentionally divert the focus of the conversation onto yourself. So when someone shares their trauma with you, it's, really important that they feel that they have your full attention. And so when you're telling them that you've had the same experience, they're unable to receive like the individualized recognition of their pain. And it can seem like you have a lack of interest in their experience. And it can also feel like their story just served as a means for you to speak about your own story. So it's a really delicate line. Um, I I think it's great to, to talk about it share your experience later on but uh-huh. i think it can come across that way initially unfortunately we need to wrap this in this could have been a whole hour conversation so just uh, <laughs> can you um as we say goodbye you know share some mm-hmm. lines that you can say that work some things that people should be doing yeah yeah yeah. okay so something you can say well first of all you know your instinct is you want to fix it you want their pain to go away but there's never usually like some kind of quick fix so it's really great to just 
um, you know, one, thank them for sharing because that acknowledges their bravery and, it, you know, that it took for them to reveal this intimate information. It also validates their experience, you know, by recognizing the magnitude of what they shared. Um, so you can also ask them if there's anything you can do. You know, you don't have to have all the answers and they may know just what they need. And even if they're not able to articulate their needs, just asking is really beneficial because it shows that you care and you're willing to help. Um, Definitely. And then I think one more thing is, and this can't be, it's like the most obvious thing, but it can't be overstated, is when you just tell them you're sorry, Hmm. right? Because it's really powerful because it confirms, you know, it confirms their experience. And you may not be able to relate, but telling someone that you're sorry, it can substantiate their pain and affirms your caring. Well, Abigail Makepeace, thank you so much for being here for this. Such great stuff. Of course. Thank you for having me. Coming up on the show, why some stress is actually good for you. Well, how does that work? We discuss that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Why some stress is actually good for you. It's all about how you deal with it. That's the headline for this article on today.com, and it got us thinking. Is that possible? Because, you know, we can all be stressed, but is it just about changing perspective? Well, here to break that down is Dr. Vail Wright, who's a clinical psychologist and senior director of healthcare innovation at the American Psychological Association. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here again. Yes. So... I guess, can stress be good for you? Or is all stress bad? So I actually don't think of it that way at all. I don't think of stress as good or bad. I think of it as inevitable. No matter who you are, you're going to experience stress at some point in your life. And it really has to do with how you manage it. And that includes how you physically manage it, emotionally manage it, and mentally manage it. That makes a difference. Yeah, but that sounds a little bit easier said than done, that perspective. Because it seems like you've kind of reframed how you should be taking in stress or looking at stress. So how do you, in the moment, when you're experiencing a high-stress moment, how do you think, oh, what? take a positive lesson from this moment? Like, how is that? Because it just seems impossible. I mean, sometimes you just have to deal with the stress in the moment. I mean, it's a brain response, right? So your brain is going to kick in in an evolutionary kind of way to fight, freeze, or flight, right? So you're going to respond in that moment. But then it's that secondary part, right? So it's after that initial moment has happened that you have that time to maybe take a breath and go, okay, now how can I manage the stress? But the best way is to maintain your emotional regulation before the stressful event happens. That way, when you get stressed out, you know how to manage it. Okay. But for those who might not get this lingo, what is emotional regulation and how do you maintain that? So it's really about... um, Staying in a place where when we get rattled, we can fall back on our resilience. And so um, it's at its really core, it's going to sound super basic, but it's true. It's really about making sure we're uh, sleeping enough, that we're eating healthy foods, that we're not being too sedentary, that we're not isolating ourselves. Because when we can really kind of engage in that self-care, then when we're presented with problems, we're better problem solvers. But if we're already upset and we're already disappointed and distraught, it just becomes really hard to manage. So the extent, and I know it does sound like I'm making it easier than it is, and I know it's not, 
But really it is at that foundation trying to engage in those things so that we can manage stress better. So this article that we're referencing on uh, today.com is really interesting because it, it says too little stress, you might feel less challenged and motivated. So is there a perfect balance of stress that we should be kind of aiming for? Well, it depends on the situation. So stress in and of itself, the function is ideally to motivate our behavior, right? So we want to feel a certain level of stress that makes us want to perform. So that level of stress that makes us prepare for the presentation or that level of stress that makes us study for that exam or the level of stress that makes me prepare to come on the radio station today. Mm -hmm. But you're right. If it's too little stress, then that kind of suggests we maybe don't care enough. Um, Mm. And if it's too much stress, then we become overwhelmed um, to the point where we might not be able to act at all. So there is kind of this balance. Is that a bad thing? Like if you don't care enough? Like I I guess essentially care, it feels like, oh, if I don't care enough, then, you know, that means I'm kind of just letting it go. I'm just kind of like being like, oh, you know, something else will come about. But it, it feels like if you care too much, it's intense. But if you care... Like a little, like, I guess I don't know what I'm trying to say. It just feels like the less that you care actually may be better for you because it's not like you're experiencing the anxiety around it. But you might be missing out on something else, right? So if I'm in a relationship that maybe isn't going well and I don't care, that probably suggests that that isn't the right relationship for me oh, or yeah. that I'm not putting in enough effort to maintain that relationship. So so it's about, you know, again, the sense of are you not really paying attention to the things that are important to you? Or maybe it is your body communicating to you that this isn't important and then you've got to shift and do something else. So interesting. Well, thank you for helping us navigate this topic. Again, that was Dr. Vail Wright, a clinical psychologist, senior director of healthcare innovation at the American Psychological Association. We'll see you soon. Yep. I can't wait. Coming up on the show, Nancy Pelosi called out Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad in a new book, What She Had to Say Next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, dissed Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other members of the squad in this new biography. We've got some tea, and it's not in the tea report. So Axios received some excerpts of Susan Page's Madam Speaker. This is this book, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. And in it, they're saying Pelosi unloads on the squad at one point, adopting a childlike voice when discussing Representative AOC and offers the squad this blunt advice. You're not a one person show. This is the Congress of the United States. I don't like that. I do not like that, actually, at all, that she said that. That's what she said? You're quoting her? Yeah, well, this was from the book. Like, this is an excerpt from this book. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've had these conversations about, you know, especially when AOC first got into office and and talking about, well, maybe you haven't learned a whole bunch just yet, you know, kind of play the backseat for a little bit and then do what you want to do when you learn and all these things and kind of respect the system of it all. But I also find it annoying the ageism that I feel like happens from older folks to younger folks, specifically you, Shira. Oh. No, it's a real this thing. This is the I, only culture where we don't thing. respect elders. No, that's not true. We, that is I, so I respect true. my elders. I've no, always like, respected my elders. In the way of understanding and respecting that they're giving you real advice and like yeah, understanding but, the, the, like, the path that it took and the time it took to get where they are. I think we all have acknowledged that because, I mean, trust me, I, I feel like ALC specifically has acknowledged that, but times have evolved. Times have moved on. And so this 
idea that we're going to be stuck in this Nancy Pelosi ass world is just not realistic. Things are evolving. You got to let the young people do the stuff that they got to do to get the change to happen. Because guess what? Nancy Pelosi ain't always been 87. I don't know if that's her real age, but she had always been that age. Of course. So she had to, she was young and radical at one point as well, not listening to old folks. So this is a cycle that I think sometimes people forget, um, you know, what how it was like being a younger person. And it's, it's slightly annoying to me. And her saying that, what is that supposed to do? Is that dividing the Democratic Party more or is it putting them together? Because for me, it looks like you're dividing it and being shady in your book. I think that a lot of people have acknowledged this, and we've even talked about it in our show, how uh, AOC and the squad, we're not debating about what they're doing is important. It's just how they're doing it. Are are they playing a game of chess? What do you mean? How are they doing it? Checkers. No, we're... What do you mean? Are they playing the long game or the short game? But the long game gets us nowhere when we're dealing with the same things that we've been dealing ago with decades. Nancy Pelosi and her team had all this time to get it done and no one has. Not negating anything that Nancy Pelosi has done because she has done things, but I'm I'm saying moving forward, uh, holding people accountable, I think we're seeing a new wave of politicians who are young, who are fired up and ready to do this. And I don't think that is cute for Nancy Pelosi to throw digs in her book like that. She too old. She said, well, there are people who have a large number of Twitter followers. This is when she kind of dismissed AOC before for this New Deal environmental reform. What's important is that we have a large number of votes on the floor of the House. So, I mean, I feel like if there was a way for them to come together or like they would be stronger together, it is unfortunate to see this kind of tension between generations. And I here's the thing. I also what? do agree with the idea of playing the game if you need to, right? Like understanding the playing, it's not chess. I mean, it's not checkers, it's chess, whatever that saying is. But I, I also do think that the ageism of not also understanding that younger people are the reasons why we continue to evolve. Because and guess what? The, Older the, folks were doing that was, same thing. And for the path that was paved by the past as well. And people we have acknowledged that. that. Who hasn't acknowledged that? I'm that just... is literally me acknowledging that. Madam Speaker, the book will be available on April 20th, and it should be juicy. I mean, it already is getting this studio into a tornado. <laughs> Coming up on the show, Joe Biden has called for an increase in funds and the HIV epidemic. More details on that on What's Trending This Hour next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Coming up, what we need to know about President Biden withdrawing U.S. forces from Afghanistan and why the U.S. is also calling for pausing on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. What happened that made that decision? And we have an infectious diseases expert joining us for that in 30 minutes. Also, one of the queer eyes are having a baby. So stick around for my tea report coming up in a few. I'm excited to hear more about that. First, let's get into some what's trending this hour. VP Kamala Harris started her Black Maternal Health Roundtable today by addressing the killing of Dante Wright. Um, Before we get started, I do want to address the killing of Dante Wright. He should be alive today. And to his family and loved ones, you must know that the president and I grieve with you as the nation grieves his loss, and we stand with you. Our nation needs justice and healing, and law enforcement must be held to the highest standards of accountability. At the same time, we know that folks will keep dying if we don't fully address racial injustice 
and inequities in our country, from implicit bias to broken systems. Um, Before we get started. Why did he say that? Why did Joe Biden say that was a great statement for me? I mean, of course, my queen, Kamala Harris, said it best. Seriously. But maybe maybe I should give a little more grace space to Joe Biden. I don't know. It seemed like... But she was prepared. Yeah, she she was prepared. She said it right. And it seemed like he, unfortunately, wasn't, even though I'm surprised he wasn't, considering he knew he was doing something publicly. He should have gone into Monday knowing that this was something he would be asked about. Right? Like, that's the first thing. You have a crisis like that over the weekend... Your folks go, okay, how do we respond to this come Monday? Or even come this moment? What happens? So, yeah. Uh, but let's move on. Oh, wait. Actually, oh. did you know? Um, I saw this story uh, earlier um, that uh, he was taught by George Floyd's a girlfriend in school. Oh, yeah. There I saw was that. a connection to that. And I was like, what? Crazy. It's like, it, ga- it gave me chills mm-hmm. when I heard his aunt speaking about that. It gave me chills because I'm like, it just tells you how um, how prevalent this happens. It, I mean, it can literally happen to you and your neighbor. And it's like, it's just something that happens. You got to keep going with that, I guess, because the system. Someone also shared a map of the area and where the uh, Philandro Castile murder was uh, George Floyd and his murder was and it was all in the similar area which also shows when you talk about policing and the policing of certain communities it's so obvious what more data do you need yeah right well um, finally the Biden administration sorry is seeking to drastically increase funds to help accelerate and strengthen efforts to end the HIV AIDS epidemic They introduced this budget proposal submitted to the Senate Appropriations Committee. In the budget, the Ending the HIV Epidemic Program will get an additional $267 million, its first increase since it was started in 2019 under the Trump administration. The initiative under the oversight of the Health and Human Services Department would have a budget of $670 million instead of $403 million. Wow. That was allotted at its start. That's an increase of 40%. So it shows where his focus is at in terms of ending the HIV AIDS epidemic. That was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Oh my God. Uh, One of the Queer Eye stars. They're having a baby. Tan Friends is expecting his first baby via surrogate. Um, Can you imagine the little pint signs French tucks? that he likes to do on the little baby. Oh, it's so cute. Well-dressed baby. Well, um, he announced the personal news from him and his husband, Rob Friends, in an Instagram post on um, literally today. So happy to finally share that we're having a baby. He captioned a shirtless photo of himself, uh, even with a sonogram edited into his stomach. And he was like, no, I'm not pregnant, despite this very realistic pic. <laughs> um, I'm actually super excited about this. They have revealed um, the sex of the baby and shared that he and Rob are expecting a little boy via surrogate in just a few months. So this baby has been cooking and about to arrive. It's very sweet. Yeah, he said, with the greatest gift and help of the most wonderful surrogate, Rob and I are lucky enough to be on our way to being parents this summer. Now, I have a question. Okay. You know how um, Tan France, he has an accent, right? 
Mm-hmm. Do you think the baby's going to have, like, uh, you know, because like, he's British? No, it happens. That doesn't get passed on genetically. That's I know, in the I know that, but if you're growing up around your parents. You might have an affectation That's what I'm bit, saying. Like a bit of like a... Sure, I thought I was dumb. <laughs> I was just clarifying. I was answering the question. <laughs> that would be funny if you were born. You're like, look, I popped out. I have an exit. I'm a British person. <laughs> out of nowhere. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think if you're around uh, anyone, I think you start to pick up certain mannerisms that they have. Well, I'm Just super like, excited for Tan France and his yes. husband. <laughs> yeah, I uh, can't too. wait to see the little one. They're gonna, he's gonna be so cute. And uh, that's your tea report. If you want to know any of the stories that I've covered on today's show, head over to wearechannelq.com. And of course, keep the conversation going at LGT Show Everywhere. Ryan, have you picked up any mannerisms from me by hanging out with me? We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yaz Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. This one goes out to 10-year-old Kai Shapley, who testified in front of the Texas Senate State Affairs Committee yesterday and basically schooled the legislators on how to be better adults. Uh, She spoke against a proposed law that would brand her mom as a child abuser for supporting her daughter. It makes me sad that some politicians use trans kids like me to get votes from people who hate me just because I exist. God made me. God loves me for who I am and God does not make mistakes. You should be careful how you treat the least of these. Please just listen to me, hear me, try to educate yourselves, try to understand everybody. My mom has been giving everything she has to stand up for me. With these new things y'all are trying to do, we both are having to advocate for each other because you are now targeting a great mom and a great nurse. My mom needs her nursing license to take care of me and my siblings. These people should be ashamed of themselves. The fact that this little girl has to come here and fight for her life, basically, fight for her rights. And they'll still say that she is just a prop used from the liberals. They still won't listen to her message. And it's just really frustrating that she has to even be in this position. And it's just frustrating that, you know... 10-year-olds can't just be kids. They have to now fight for everyday living. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more about her because uh, she definitely speaks in a very powerful way. Um, It's needed, but at the same time, I wish that a 10-year-old didn't have to do this. Yeah, as you mentioned, this wasn't their job. Uh, But that does it for our Yaz Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. And if you want to nominate anyone for our Yaz Queen, or if you're just inspired by anything that you want us to share on the show, slide into our DMs at LGT Show is where you can find us. It's so easy. We are back tomorrow, same time, weekdays here live on Channel Q, 2 to 6 p.m. Pacific, 5 to 9 p.m. Eastern. On tomorrow's show, we're going to be talking about how an officer can mistake a gun for a taser and... How we make sure this does not happen again, plus the healing power of dogs for people living with HIV. That's tomorrow. If you miss any of our shows or interviews, we post everything as a podcast. Just go to the Odyssey app or where podcasts are available and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember. And stick around for Love Line with Dr. Chris where he's covering Sexual Assault Awareness Month. That's next. Bye, y'all.